Please do turn with me again to the letter of Paul to the Colossians, chapter 1. And our text this morning is found in verses 9, 10, and 11. I hope to work through these verses, which are so full of truth and helpful thoughts for us this morning. Our subject will be being spiritually fruitful. Paul is in prison. It's around about A.D. 61, 62, 3, something like that. He's given his greetings to this small church, which has been founded probably by Epaphras, its pastor. Paul was a hundred kilometers away in Ephesus, but now he's imprisoned. And while he's there in prison, as Paul always did, he used his time to great effect. He wrote this letter, preserved for us, because its words are not really just for the believers there, they are for all time. They have a timeless message. Paul has given thanks for the church, individuals that he's heard of. He calls them in verse 2, the saints, those set apart, called, and those whose lives have demonstrated that they are faithful brothers and sisters, not of their own, but in Christ. That's what a Christian is. Somebody whose life, whose very existence is no longer defined by themselves. We'll think of that tonight. But the definition of their life is that they are in Christ, and Christ is in them. What's a church? A church is people that no longer live in the world. Yes, of course we do. We live physically, but spiritually our life is defined by being in Christ. In Christ's life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his truth, in his power, so we have life, power. And we exist because of him. So he writes to the church. He's heard of their faith, verse 4. It's a living faith. It's a faith which again is in Christ, verse 4. He repeats himself. And this faith, it's not theoretical. It's not academic. This isn't something which you were born into. It wasn't inherited from your mother and father. That cannot be. No. Your faith is a living faith in Christ. And it's demonstrated by the fact that you show your faith. It's worked out. It's outworked. It demonstrates that it's not theoretical. It's lived. It's breathed. It's shown in its choices. The people that we love, 
are defined by the fact we're Christians. He says it in verse 4. I'm giving you some recap on previous weeks for those who were not here. This faith is outpoured because every Christian will have a special love for other Christians. We'll want to meet with them. We'll want to be at the prayer meeting. We'll want to be at the Bible study. We'll want to see them. We'll want to be concerned for them. If somebody's in hospital, we'll want to hear news of them. If we have missionaries in other countries, we'll be praying for them because we have love for all saints. That's now our life. We're not so concerned with Hello Magazine. We're not so concerned with the gossip. We want to hear of believers. What's going on in their life? Is somebody struggling? Have they got a difficulty in the family? Oh, we have a love for them. Not just an emotional love, an attachment. Not just we give them a hug or a handshake. But we've got a love for their well-being. We've got a love that their lives flourish and grow for all the saints. Well, let's look at our text this morning. Starting in verse 9, there is a 218-word sentence. doesn't quite come across in the punctuation, but from verse 9, Paul doesn't breathe until verse 20. The punctuation, there is a full stop in my Bible, down there in verse 18. But in the original, 218 words, Paul, take a breath. This is a very Pauline demonstration of his writing. He has so much to stay, he can't stop himself. He just goes on and on. It's one long flowing evidence of truth. This is spirit breathed. This is the word of God pouring out from Paul's lips. Verses 9 to 14 are a prayer. We shall look at part one of that this morning. The second half of those 218 words are from verse 15 to 20. We shall look at that in future weeks. The second section is saying, you only need Christ. You don't need a substitute. You don't need an alternative. You don't need anything added. You just need Christ. He's before all things, he's during all things, and he will be after all physical, material things. And that's what he will say. But verses 9 to 11 are a prayer. And the second part of the prayer in verses 12 to 14. This is a wonderful prayer. We see in these words, Paul's desires. Do you know when you pray, 
We shouldn't pray, bless him, bless her. We're praying from the heart. When you pray, it's a cry. It's pleading. It's taking my desires, the things that I really care about, it's putting them into words. That's what Paul does. Verse 9, for this cause. What's the cause? The church, the people, the people that have gathered together. He's praying for the gospel. He's praying for the truth. He's praying for the pastor. He's praying that the church would flourish for this cause. He carries on. He's mentioned their faith. What a tragic thing it would be if there was somebody here this morning, if me, you, we were come, we were to come to saving faith, but then we were to stagnate. We were to have a stasis, a paralysis, an inertia. Oh, we've come to Christ, we've been forgiven. We've, been re we've repented, we've been taken from darkness to life. And then we stop there, just paralyzed. Sometimes you hear of somebody, you might see an operation in those programs, wonderful programs on the television. Somebody's had a road traffic accident. And tragically, their legs don't work anymore. They can't even move their arms. All they can move is maybe from their head upwards, as we say, their shoulders upwards. The only thing that's moving is their mind, their eyes, their mouth, but the rest of their body is now powerless. Is that true of one of us, of me? We have faith, yes, in the mind, in the heart, but the body, the life, the energy, the activity is not there. Do you know that's what this prayer from Paul is about? For this cause... Since the day we heard of your faith, yes, it's genuine, it's real, Paul has shown how, we don't cease, we don't stop to pray for you. William Hendrickson calls this a fellowship of prayer. He prays for them. They pray for him, no doubt, in prison. They're praying for each other. There's a network of prayer. One believer, one church, praying for each other, and that's good, and that's right. But if we stand back, what's his prayer? His prayer is a bit like the prayer of Peter. You might like to turn to this. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8. He's going to mention a similar thing, but he puts it in the negative. And I think it's helpful in these verses to look at the negative as well as the positive. 2 Peter 1 and verse 8. He's making a very similar argument and he says, 
For if these things be in you and abound, if they flourish, if they come to life, if literally they fill over your vessel, that's what it means, you've got your body, you've got your life, and if these things are flowing over, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, Dear believer, brother and sister in Christ, we've heard of your faith. We've heard that you've joined the church. We've heard that you no longer worship idols. You no longer live life the way you once did because Christ is in you. But dear friend, are you stagnating? Are you paralyzed? Are you alive only from the neck upwards so that you are barren, unfruitful? You're not living the Christian life as God would desire you to live and as Paul desires. If we have any fruitless Christians this morning, and I include myself, this is a message for us that we would not be barren, fruitless. And if there's any of us that could be more fruitful, just imagine a tree. It's got life. It's got branches, it's got leaves, but there's no fruit. What's the point of the tree? What's the point of being converted to Christ and then living a life where there is no fruit? It's not why Christ has saved us. It's not what Christ desires. You think of that parable, sobering words, why cumbers it the ground? I love the old authorized version. It's so much better. Why does it take up space? You're an encumbrance. The place that you have in the church, in your life, with the people around you, why are you taking up space? And the Lord says, let me dig it around. Maybe there'll be fruit. Yes, that's applying to people that are not converted, but it applies to us, the same fruitless Christians. Well, this morning, in our brief time, there are, I believe, seven things in verses 9 to 11, and we could call this a charter for living. We could call it a manifesto for the Christian life. It contains everything we need. It's beautifully constructed. Each thought layers upon the other. The order is important. This is about living a fruitful, fruit-bearing Christian life. And I will try and mention the negative first. Well, the first principle in this charter is here in verse 9. Paul says he wants that we would be filled 
with the knowledge of his will. What's the opposite? What's the negative? A life that's all about me. My ideas. My opinions. My thoughts. Oh, don't we have lots of those? Can I say, especially the young, where you're taught, maybe it's a good thing. Have your own opinion. You decide what Julius Caesar was all about. You decide your gender, your sexuality. You decide what's right and wrong for you. Well, that's the negative. But Paul says something entirely different. His desire, first of all, is that you would be filled to overflowing, that's what the word literally means, with the knowledge of his will. If you're going to live the Christian life, if you're going to be fruitful, productive, fruit-bearing, you cannot begin if your life and mind has just got your own ideas. I think this. I've decided that. No, no, no. Paul is saying, I want you to be a thinking person. And the thoughts, the first thought that you are to have is, what's the will of God? How do I know the will of God? We were thinking of this in the adult Bible class this morning. It's a vital question. How do I know God's will for my life? Should I live here? Should I live there? Should I marry this person, that person? Should I study this subject? How do I know? Well, go and look at Psalm 25. The method and the answers are all there, but this verse tells us that up front... First of all, I need to know the knowledge of his will. Well, the word of God tells us. You can look up that expression, the will of God. This is God's will. I mention a few verses for those taking notes. Romans 12, 2. This is God's will, that you should not be conformed to this world. Secondly, that you should be sanctified. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, made holy. Thirdly, this is the will of God, that you should be thankful in all things. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. Fourthly, that you should stand firm. It's here in Colossians 4. And verse 12, you might want to turn to it. Colossians 4, verse 12. Epaphras, their pastor, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, he salutes you that you might be, that you might stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Fifthly, 1 Peter 2, verse 15. You should do good, and in so doing, silence the ignorant and foolish people. 
What's the will of God? That you would be conformed to God's will, not the world. That you would be made holy. That you would be made thankful. That you would stand firm. And that you would live a life of good works. They won't save you. But once you become a Christian, the good works that you do, the acts of kindness, your witness, your testimony, your life, will silence foolish people. People that say there's no God. And through your life, there will be a silent testimony. Oh yes, there is a God. Because he's transformed your life, you have an inner peace. You have an engine for God. And so that's the first point. A foundation for fruitfulness is made in knowing the will of God. That's why we read, that's why we read the word of God, that we might know God's will. Secondly, he says here in verse 10, Having understood, and we could have said a lot more, the will of God in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that doesn't come automatically. It's something we learn more and more. But secondly, in verse 10, having understood God's will, ah, now I can walk. I can live my life. What's the way that's the opposite? To walk disorderly. To walk an unworthy life. To walk only a private life. Keeping myself to myself. No. Paul says in wonderful words that we individually and together as a church would walk worthily. Oh, that's a challenge. That I might lead a life that's pleasing, acceptable, that's what he goes on to say, a life that's suitable and fitting for the one that's called me. Just think of Christ's life. A life of devotion. A life lived in private and in public. Surrounded by people he couldn't get away from them. But he didn't mind. A life where he was nearly always available. Unless he took himself to one side. A life, Luke 8, where his mother and his family came to him and they couldn't get near him because of the crowd and he said who are my mother and father who are my family everybody that does the will of God they are my family that's very searching isn't it we speak about me time we speak about my rights to have time on my own. Today was a day for me. We say, Christ never did that. He had an hour, a few hours. 
There was a time to come aside, but Paul's desire is that we might walk worthily. There's only four people mentioned in the word of God who walked with God, Noah, Enoch, Abram, Zacharias. They walked with God. Are you walking with God? Or are you walking alone? Or are you walking with the world? In step with its beat? In harmony with its fashions? Paul says no. His prayer for the church at Colossae is that they would walk worthily of the Lord. That's a standard so high. Walking worthily, walking appropriately, suitably, acceptably, unto the pleasing of God. Thirdly, you see how they layer and flow? Paul, without taking a breath, says, thirdly, that you would be fruitful. You can only be fruitful if you know God's will. And if your life is worthy, you lead an unworthy life. You let the Lord down. You have a fashion and a desire and a way of living. You know what that means. We don't apply it in a legalistic sense. We know what it means to walk worthily. We just don't do it. You're leading an unworthy life this morning. How can you be fruitful? How can you lead a life that's pleasing to God and that he wants to work with and work through? Being fruitful. I'm sure Paul was referring to Galatians 6, the fruits of the Spirit. But I'm sure as well he was thinking of souls a soul winner is wise, says Proverbs. We should all be engaged in soul winning. But we can only do that if we know the will of God and we're work, walking worthily. The word here has in mind bringing crops for the farmer. There's an object in mind. Being Fruitful in all good works. Every good work. Not fruit just to look at. Not fruit because it's attractive, it might be. But fruit that's for the farmer. The harvester of souls. Being fruitful in every good work. It's through our life and what we do that God would use us. It's utterly wrong to say that the Christian is not being used by God. God delights to work through means, through instruments, through worthy lives, through those who are seeking to live the will of God. Fourthly, it says here that we should be increasing in the knowledge of God. You know that's a lifelong degree. Not three years. 
Not a master's done in one year or a PhD in three. This is a lifelong degree. Increasing in the knowledge of God. What's the opposite? To be ignorant. Ignorant of Satan's devices. Ignorant of God, of what he's done in church history, of what he's done in other people's lives. That's why we love to hear testimonies. Ignorant of his character, of his attributes, of his ways. Ignorant of his word. Are we students of the word of God? Are we increasing? That's why we study. It's why we read good books, articles, things that will feed our souls and increase us in the knowledge of God. Are you a reading person? Are you a studying person? Study yourself, Timothy, to be approved of God. A workman, somebody that's looking to be built up, somebody that's ever understanding the purposes of God. If we know the will of God and his purpose, we can be engaged and instruments within it. Fifthly, verse 11, how can we endure? How can we flourish? How can we be strong unless God strengthens us? Do you know, if you're a millionaire, You might see a beggar on the street. You might get out your wallet. You might put a 50-pound note in that person's box. But that's nothing. That's just a fraction. might mean a lot to the poor man or woman that sits there. But that's not what this verse says. This verse says, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. The power of God is infinite. And what Paul is saying is, you poor believers in Colossae, you might be poor in number, poor in strength, But God doesn't put a 50-pound note at your disposal. He gives you the strength that comes from all the might of his glorious power. He puts a multi-billionaire of riches and power and strength at your disposal this week when you're struggling. When you're thinking, I can't. I haven't got enough to go on. I can't keep walking. I can't be fruitful. I can't manage in the hospital ward. And the Lord says, through Paul, that he will strengthen us with all might according to his glorious power. Unlimited power, inexhaustible power, power that knows neither beginning nor end, available at your disposal.
That's how this church at Colossae and here will be strengthened because it won't be our faith. It won't be our strength. It won't be our power. It will be all of his glorious power, an infinite library made available for you to lend and to borrow from. Well, sixthly, once we've got this foundation of the will of God and we're walking with him and we're being fruitful and we're increasing, notice the increasing knowledge comes after you're fruitful. You don't need to know everything to be fruitful. You don't need to go to seminary to be fruitful. Immediately we're called to be fruitful. But the Lord gives knowledge. He gives strength. And then the trials come. The trials come in life and they do to all of us. Sickness. Parents betraying their children. Children betraying their parents. Letdown and disappointments in jobs. Cruel things. What are we to do? Well, sixthly comes patience, endurance. It literally means in the midst of trouble and trial, these believers will be given a patience to know that God might not answer straight away. He will answer. Be absolutely certain. But do you know what faith says? Faith says, I know God will answer. But it may not be today. It might be next week. It might be the week after. That's what patience says. Patience doesn't doubt. Patience doesn't fear. Patience says God's will will be done in God's time, in God's way. And long-suffering. That's similar but that implies the passage of time within the believer's life, enabling that person to endure and to go on enduring. Patience and long-suffering, two qualities of a believer that you can only see through life. You can't say, I was patient for an hour. No, that's impatience. I was patient. That needs time. I suffered long. That means through the whole trial. The Lord gives us the strength and he puts at our disposal all the resources that we will need. But then the seventh point before we stop. With joyfulness. Do you know believers sometimes, they, they're patient. They wait. They suffer long. But they do it with a grumpy smile. 
They do it by showing every feeling on their faces. Oh yes, I'm being patient, I'm trusting the Lord. But inside, it's like a wet weekend. It's like a cold blanket. There's no demonstration that we're doing it with joy. You're not really being patient. You're not suffering long unless you have accompanied with that the joy of the Lord that helps me to endure. The joy of the Lord that says God's plan is perfect. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows how. He knows when. He knows through what means. And I will be joyful. Because those truths, they bear me up. And in the midst of this trial and this difficulty which might go on for years, I'm joyful. It's not worked up. It's not put on. It's not a sticking plaster. It's not a mask. This joyfulness comes from the heart. Because it trusts in the sovereignty of God. And it knows in that church in Colossae that there might be problems. Idol worshippers might come in. False prophets might come in. But they hold on to the truth. And they say, we will stand. We will stand for Christ. We will stand together. We will love one another. We will be fruit bearing. And while we're doing that, we will have joy. Christ had that. He endured the cross. He endured up to the cross. Can we not do the same? Through the passing trials, with joyfulness. Can we have that sweet smile in our life? even in our demeanor. Don't endure and be patient with a frown and with a grumpiness that belies what we actually believe and trust. That's Paul's desire. Do you see the order? This is divine. Paul didn't write this. This is the Holy Spirit laying the foundations for fruitfulness. May we be ever more fruitful by applying these things to our